This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The villagers were seeing ghosts. They came at dusk from out of the dense forest. Their bodies slung low to the ground like something that had just crawled out of a grave. These creatures were said to have human bodies, but their heads were those of demons, with eyes that glowed in the dark. The villagers called them the Manush Baga, which in Bengali roughly translates to man-ghost. Rumor had it that these creatures lived somewhere deep in the woods, where they were protected by a pack of wolves. The year was 1920, and according to the story that was recounted later, this all occurred in a remote village in India called Gadamuri. The villagers of Gadamuri didn't know what to do to rid themselves of these terrible demons that plagued them night after night, so they turned to a visiting missionary named Joseph Amrito Lal Singh for help. Reverend Singh was skeptical of the stories the villagers told him, but he was still curious enough that he decided to stick around and check it out for himself. In September of that year, the Reverend tried scouting the area but could find no evidence of any forest-dwelling demons. But the villagers who came to him kept insisting they were really there and that they would soon return. So the Reverend ordered the villagers to build him a hunting blind up in one of the taller trees where he would sit with a pair of binoculars and wait to see if anything emerged from the jungle. On the evening of October 9, 1920, Reverend Singh was up in the blind waiting impatiently as the hours wore on, and nothing much was happening. But then, just as he was contemplating giving up this foolish game, he saw something emerge from the forest. It was a fully grown wolf, followed by another and then a group of cubs after that. It was what came after the cubs that really shocked him. He realized the villagers were telling the truth, or at least the truth as they saw it. There were two of them, both walking on all fours just like the wolves. Their hair was matted and they were covered in dirt. But even through the thick mud, Reverend Singh could clearly see that these two strange creatures weren't wolves. They were human. According to the story Reverend Singh later wrote in his diary, he took a hunting party with him out into the dense forest searching for the pair, whom he realized now were two human children. He managed to track them back to a large anthill the wolf pack had been using as a shelter. The men surrounded the burrow and began beating at it with shovels. Immediately, a pair of wolves came rushing out of the shelter and ran off into the woods. But then... A third, large female came charging out after them. Only this one ran toward the men, gnashing her teeth and growling fiercely. This was a mother wolf, and she was clearly being protective of something inside the den. One of the men ended up shooting and killing the wolf with a bow and arrow. After that, Singh and the tribesmen tore apart the walls of the mound, 
reveal four small creatures huddled inside. Two of them were wolf cubs, but the other two were a pair of human girls, roughly two and eight years old. Singh took the two girls back to the orphanage he ran in Midnapore and attempted to raise them as his own. For a time, Singh attempted to keep the story quiet, fearing that if word got out about the two wolf children, then it might endanger their chances for a normal life. But there was nothing normal about these girls. Singh and his wife named the older girl Kamala and named the younger one Amala. After they were bathed and their hair was cut, the girls took on a more normal appearance. But according to Singh, the two girls didn't speak and didn't want to walk upright. They preferred to crawl around on their hands and knees. They shied away from other people, snarling at them like animals if anyone got too close. The girls also didn't like to be out in daylight, and by night they would sometimes howl pitifully at the moon. The girls rejected most foods offered to them, and instead sought out raw meat. Sometimes the girls would sniff out and scavenge chicken entrails from the garbage. Most peculiar of all, Reverend Singh claimed, was that the girls' eyes gave off a peculiar glow, like that of a cat in the darkness. Within a year of their capture, both girls fell seriously ill. Despite the best efforts of the local doctors, the younger girl, Amala, died of a kidney ailment. This was the first time Reverend Singh claimed to see any normal human emotions from the older sister, Kamala, who wept as the younger girl died. Amala's death appeared to have a profound effect on the older girl in other ways as well. Over time, she started wearing clothes and began walking upright for short distances. She even learned to speak a few words. Although she had once been averse to daylight, her behavior changed abruptly, and she suddenly became afraid of the dark. Early on, the girls had befriended the Singh's family dog, whom they had a natural affinity towards. But after Kamala's behavior began to change, so too did the dog's attitude toward her change as well. Suddenly, the dog began growling at Kamala as if she were a different person. The story of Kamala and Amala is one of the most famous such stories of feral children you'll find throughout history. But as you'll soon hear, theirs isn't the only such story. Legends of children who were raised by animals and who came to act just like them have been around for centuries. But in reality, there's a lot more about the story of these feral children than you might think. And I'm here to tell you all about it. I'm Nate Hale, coming to you live from my secret podcasting cave where I'm being raised by a very nice Sasquatch family. And this is The Conspirators. In 1929, Kamala died of tuberculosis when she would have been about 17 years old. By then, the story of the two wolf girls of Gata Murray had become public knowledge. So when Kamala died, it became big news. Although the girl's death did little to quiet the controversy surrounding Reverend Singh's story. After Kamala's death, several people looked into Reverend Singh's claims that he wrote about in his memoir. And some of them began to cast doubt on the story. 22 years later, in 1951, an American sociologist named William F. Ogburn traveled to India looking to corroborate Singh's version of events. 
But even with the aid of a detective agency, Ogburn couldn't verify many of Singh's claims. In fact, he couldn't even locate a village called Gautamari, where everything was said to originally take place. By that point in time, Singh had died as well, so there was no chance of interviewing him any further either. But in 1975, another researcher named Charles McLean managed to track down a member of Singh's original hunting party, who supported the Reverend's version of events. McLean concluded that while the Reverend may have exaggerated some details, the story of the feral girls was essentially true. The idea that there are people who grow up among animals and assume their characteristics is nothing new. There are countless stories from history of children who live in the wild and develop without learning any human behaviors, and instead learn to live life as animals. In 1758, the legendary Swedish botanist Carolus Linnaeus declared that these feral children were their own unique species, Homo ferus. Linnaeus claimed this species was distinguished by an inability to speak, an abundance of body hair, and a predilection to walk on all fours. Most modern scientists dismiss this notion, attributing the children's behavior to some very real emotional disorders. In 2007, a French surgeon named Serge Arolles wrote a book titled The Enigma of the Wolf Children, in which he cast serious doubt on the story of Amala and Kamala. Through his research, Arolles was able to dispute many of the claims made by Reverend Singh. For one thing, it turns out that the most popular photograph you can find of the wolf girl's aren't even really Amala and Kamala. They were two other similar-looking girls from Midnapore whom Singh had posed for a photo in 1937, after Amala and Kamala were both dead. According to our roles, the doctor from the orphanage Singh Rang later reported that the girls exhibited none of the anomalies or strange behaviors that Singh claimed. There were several eyewitnesses who said they saw Singh beat Kamala to make her act like an animal. Arolles concluded that Singh made up the story in order to make money from his popular memoir, Wolf Children and Feral Man, which he co-authored with Professor Robert M. Zing. But that book drew such widespread criticism from anthropologists, it actually caused Zing to be fired from his job teaching at the University of Denver in 1942. It was later suggested that Kamala may have suffered from a neurodevelopmental disorder named Rett's Syndrome, that causes physical impairments and makes it difficult for the individual to speak. If we take a look back through history, one of the earliest known accounts of feral children is that of Romulus and Remus, the legendary sons of the god of war Mars. According to the legend, the king of Alba Longa, who feared the boys would one day usurp his throne, ordered that the twins be cast adrift on the river Tiber to die. But the basket bearing the infants came to rest in the reeds along the bank, where it was discovered by a she-wolf, an animal that was sacred to Mars. This she-wolf suckled the boys with her own milk, and when the boys grew to manhood, they went on to found ancient Rome. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus wrote about how the Egyptian pharaoh, Somaticus, performed an early experiment in language that also had the effect of creating what we might think of as two feral children. The pharaoh was attempting to prove that the Egyptians were the oldest people on earth. The way he thought he could determine this was by giving two newborn babies to a shepherd and instructing him that no one should speak to the children. Instead, the shepherd was to closely observe their development and, in particular, listen carefully for their first words. 
Now, Pharaoh's hypothesis was that the baby's first words would be in the root language of all people. When both children uttered the words bekos with outstretched arms, the shepherd concluded that they were saying the Phrygian word for bread. Thus, it was concluded that the Phrygians were older than the ancient Egyptians. If we jump forward several centuries, we can find another story of a feral child that comes from Hesse, Germany in 1344. The historic record tells us some hunters discovered a naked wolf boy in the forest, whom the men estimated to be about four years old. According to the story, the wolves had found the boy as an infant and raised him as one of their cubs. Like Amala and Kamala, the boy crawled around on all fours and craved raw meat. But unlike some of the other stories, this wolf child never became civilized. According to the tale, the boy's keepers tried strapping boards to his legs to force him to walk upright. But he refused to do anything to assimilate into humanity and eventually he died. Many modern authorities reject these stories of feral children as myths. Child psychologist Bruno Bettelheim described the feral child story as a reflection of the idea of humans' collective belief in a benign nature that in some fashion looks after its children. According to Bettelheim, it's a way of showing that the bond between a human and animal can be as strong as that of a mother and child. It was this sort of motherly bond that allegedly occurred in Lithuania in 1661, when hunters found a forest-dwelling boy who had been raised by bears. The boy fought his human captors with an intense fury, using his teeth and his claw-like nails to swipe at them. Despite everyone's best efforts to get the boy to wear clothes and become more human, he resisted. He refused to eat anything but meat and grass. Once he managed to slip away from his caretakers and was later found lying in the embrace of a large bear in the forest. The boy was recaptured and, according to some versions of events, was sent off to live in a convent where he remained confined for the rest of his life. Not all stories of feral children have such bleak endings. One rare story of a feral child with a relatively happy life occurred in Hamlin, Germany during the early 18th century. On July 27, 1724, a human boy of about 13 years old was lured into town and captured by a man using apples as bait. Prior to that day, the boy had been spotted lurking in the fields near town. The boy was cleaned up and given the name Peter. It was later determined that he had been abandoned by his father and stepmother. Although he was quite wild in his mannerisms, it didn't appear that Peter had been raised by any animal protectors. He'd learned to survive in the wilderness all on his own. It was difficult for Peter to learn to assimilate into human society. He didn't care for the taste of cooked foods and he often sniffed at any food offered him with great suspicion. He would often prefer to strip the bark from green twigs and suck at the wood sap. Sometimes he would even trap and eat live birds. News of the wild boy from Hamlin began to spread throughout Europe. Several academic papers were written about his peculiar dual nature, part human, part beast. In 1726, he was taken to the royal court and presented before King George I of England. Peter refused to touch any of the food from the king's banquet table and would only dine on raw meat. Peter never learned to speak more than a few words, but he was able to live a long life, although he still had to experience some very human cruelties along the way. Later in life, his guardians made a public spectacle of him, forcing him to wear a brass collar around his neck that bore the inscription, Peter the Wild Boy, along with the address of the farm where he lived. As Peter grew to old age, he was granted a small pension and allowed to live out his days on a quiet farm in Hertfordshire. 
He died in 1785 when he was estimated to be about 72 years old. One particularly unusual case of a feral child began in 1800, when people began to spot a frightening creature lurking around the homes of Aveyron in southern France. Some superstitious village began to speak of this terrible creature in the same context as Le Lugaru, what we would think of today as a werewolf. This shadowy figure was known to walk upright and even appeared to be dressed in the tattered remains of a shirt. But his movements and hairy appearance all pointed toward him being more animal than man. By the time he was finally captured, everyone realized he was not a monster, but a human child. This boy did not speak, but rather could only articulate himself by making strange guttural noises. He was captured twice, but each time managed to break free and escape. It was after his third capture that news of this wild boy reached several local physicians who wanted to examine him. It was immediately apparent that not only was this boy human, but he also appeared to have some sort of impairment, since he seldom responded to anyone around him. He was sent to the Institute for Deaf Mutes in Paris, where doctors diagnosed him as being hopelessly impaired. There was only one physician who saw the young boy differently, a man named Jean-Marc Gaspard Itard. Dr. Itard named the boy Victor and made it his mission to try to get through to the young man. From the beginning, Dr. Itard realized conventional teaching methods weren't going to work. Victor showed little interest in anything other than food and sleep. Dr. Itard began to suspect the boy was not actually deaf. He just wasn't interested in a lot of sounds. He tried playing music for Victor and got no response. Likewise, the boy didn't appear startled by the sound of a gunshot. But the sound of a walnut being cracked would suddenly alert the boy and cause him to grunt excitedly because that was the sound of food. Dr. Etard began to involve food in all his lessons. He hoped to be able to improve the boy's concentration. He tried teaching him a version of the old shell game by placing a nut under one of three cups and shuffling them around. If Victor kept track of the nut and was able to pick out the right cup, he would get to eat it. Over time, Peter began to enjoy the game and would even play without the reward. Eventually, he learned to speak a few words to ask for things he wanted, like the French word for milk. He even learned to spell some words using wooden blocks. It didn't all go smoothly, though. Sometimes Victor would get frustrated and fly into a rage. During one of these episodes, Dr. Etard grew so frustrated he did something awful. He knew that Victor was afraid of heights, so he dragged the boy over to a fourth-story window and shoved him headfirst outside so that he was staring down at the stone courtyard below. Immediately, Victor's fit of rage turned to sheer terror. After that, Victor calmly returned to his lessons. Although after the lesson was over, Victor threw himself in his bed and began to weep. According to Dr. Etard, these were the first tears he ever saw Victor shed. Although Victor showed some progress, things began to slow after about five years. Although he became less wild in his actions, he never really learned many average human skills. Dr. Etard came to the conclusion that a child who was deprived of normal social interaction at an early age would forever be unable to grow into what society thought of as a normal human being. Growing up in isolation had, in essence, turned Victor into someone who was more animal than human. Victor lived out the remainder of his life in the care of a keeper. He died in 1828 when he was about 40 years old. Like the story of Amala and Kabbalah, many of the stories of wolf children come to us from India. 
This is probably largely in part due to the fact that India has more wolves than Europe, as well as more areas not occupied by humans. It was Rudyard Kipling who gave us the most famous fictional story about a boy who was abandoned by his parents and taught the ways of the wild by his animal friends, The Jungle Book. Kipling's tale would later be adapted into multiple Disney movies, all of which contain a central theme of self-discovery and about finding harmony with nature. The one thing most people don't realize, though, is that Kipling was inspired by true events to write his story. In 1867, a group of hunters from the Bulanshar district in India tracked what they thought was a gray wolf to its den. What they found was not a wolf, though, but rather it was a human boy about six years old moving around on all fours like an animal. When the hunters approached the child, he began snarling at them and tried biting and scratching at them. They managed to bind him in chains, but even after, he continued to bite and snarl at them. So they turned him over to the Reverend C.S. Valentine at the Secundra Mission Orphanage. The Reverend Valentine named the boy Dina Sanachar. Sanachar is Hindi for Saturday. Some stories claim the Reverend came up with the name because the boy reminded him of the character Friday from Robinson Crusoe. Only it was Saturday when the hunters dropped him off. Ultimately, the Reverend's quest to civilize Sanachar didn't work out all that well. Whenever he tried to dress the boy in clothes, he would tear them off and run around naked, howling like a wolf. He continued to prefer raw meat to cooked foods, tearing the meat to shreds with his teeth that had become sharpened by chewing on hard bones. Over time, Sanachar did manage to learn to wear clothes. He also learned to speak a few words, to walk upright, and even to smoke cigarettes heavily. Later, Reverend Valentine wrote, Dina's walking was never quite normal. He would lift his legs like he was wading through water, and his body would jerk in unusual ways. In particular, his head would always pivot from side to side, always watching his surroundings. Sanachar died of tuberculosis in 1895 when it's estimated he would have been in his mid-30s. Strangely, according to some stories, Sanachar wasn't even the only wolf child living at the Sikandra Orphanage at the time. The superintendent for the orphanage claimed to have two other boys and one girl, all of whom had been raised by wolves. Some stories even claim the orphanage became such a regular drop-off point for children raised by wolves, the site became commonplace. Before we continue, let's take a moment to hear from this episode's sponsors. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, back to the show. In more modern times, many researchers have come to doubt many of the stories of feral children as either misunderstandings of some very real emotional problems or outright hoaxes and fabrications. It's almost certainly true that many of these so-called wild children are more likely on the autism spectrum or suffering some other cognitive issue. Then there are some stories which at face value are so outlandish you just have to assume the person reporting it made the whole thing up. In 1953, a French author named André de Masson wrote a book titled The Book of Wild Children in which he told the story of a gazelle boy allegedly discovered in Syria in the mid-1940s. 
According to Damason's account, this boy was about 10 years old and had developed remarkable agility by being raised among a group of gazelles. Supposedly, this boy could run and jump almost as swiftly as the gazelles themselves. His pursuers were only able to capture him by chasing after him in an army jeep. According to the story, the boy was taken to Damascus where any attempt to civilize him failed. He even tried to escape in a rather dramatic fashion by leaping from an upstairs window and running through the crowded city, causing a panic. Once he was finally recaptured, doctors surgically mutilated the boy's Achilles tendon to prevent him from ever running away again. As horrific as the story is, other researchers who have looked into these claims, though, have been unable to find any evidence any of the story actually happened. This isn't even the only story of a gazelle boy in history, either. In 1971, a French poet and artist named Jean-Claude Darmain claimed he had discovered a gazelle boy of his own back in 1960 while traveling in the Western Sahara. Arman said that while he was traveling through the Western Sahara, he spotted a herd of gazelles running swiftly in the distance. But just for an instance, before the gazelles disappeared over the horizon, Arman said he noticed a human child keeping pace with them. Later, he examined the footprints the herd left behind and was shocked to find human prints among them. Armand claimed that he followed the tracks to a small oasis near the base of a mountain. There, he said he discovered the herd congregating around water. Among them was a young boy who was currently gnawing on some grass in the dirt. Armand moved carefully toward the boy whom he estimated to be about 10 years old. He noticed the boy had dark almond-shaped eyes and an open expression. He also realized the boy's calf muscles were unusually developed and disproportionately strong. He decided not to get too close and instead spent the next several days attempting to win the boy's trust. He would sit quietly by at a distance, allowing the herd to become accustomed to his scent. Gradually, some of the younger gazelles would even come up to him and sniff him. Soon, the gazelle boy joined them. Eventually, the boy grew comfortable enough around our man that he came up and licked his hand. Over the days that followed, Armand realized that the boy was mostly following the same behaviors as the gazelles. He typically grazed on native plant life, although on one occasion he did observe him killing and eating a lizard. Eventually, Armand's supplies ran out and he had to leave the oasis. Two years later, he returned to the location accompanied by a pair of French army officers, neither of whom ever came forward to corroborate Armand's story. According to Armand, when he returned to the oasis, the herd of gazelles with the boy among them, were still living there. The boy had grown over the two years Armand had been away. Armand attempted to regain the boy's trust the same way he'd done two years earlier. But then one of the soldiers decided he wanted to test the boy's speed against the speed of their jeep. He decided to gun the engine and chase after the herd. The boy ran away in fear, leaping wildly like one of the fleeing gazelles. Armand said the soldier got the jeep up to a speed of 35 miles per hour and yet the boy was still able to run faster and get away. He never saw the boy again. Our man would later write a book about his encounters with the gazelle boy, although when he attempted to get a noted zoologist, Professor Theodore Monod, to write an introduction for him, Professor Monod began to cast doubt on our man's story. The professor later said that when he pressed our man for any evidence the story was true, our man remained elusive. At one point, our man produced a photo that he said was the boy he'd witnessed. But Manad realized this was a retouched photo of the alleged gazelle boy that had been spotted in Syria. Our man then admitted he had never thought to take a photo of his own gazelle boy. 
But when he sent Monad some photos of what he claimed were the same gazelles he tracked back to the oasis, Monad noted these were a species that weren't found in the Western Sahara. One thing I realized upon researching this topic is that there are just so many stories of so-called feral children throughout history. It can be difficult to decide which ones to mention. So many of these stories follow the same patterns over and over again as well. In particular, there seems to be a real golden age of such stories that occurs between the 17th and 19th centuries. This was a time when such stories appeared regularly. They have an enduring quality about them that carries through to the modern day. For example, the story of Victor of Aveyron, I mentioned earlier, inspired a 1970 film called The Wild Child, which later inspired a 2012 heavy metal album by the French rock group Gojira. One other such story that has taken on new life in recent years through books and movies begins in the year 1731 in the village of Sangui, in the northeastern part of France. This is a heavily forested part of the Champagne-Ardennes region that stretches into Belgium. Over time, the villagers began spotting something unbelievable emerging from the dense forest. It was a girl, estimated to be anywhere from age 10 to 18. Several witnesses claimed to have seen this girl sneaking into some of the local orchards and stealing apples. But this girl wasn't just some innocent-looking lost child. She appeared unusually strong, and she also carried a large club with her that she knew how to use. The girl demonstrated this the day one of the villagers sent a bulldog after her. The girl beat the dog to death right in front of the owner. A member of French nobility demanded that the wild girl be captured alive. Eventually, the villagers were able to lure her out of the forest and capture her. But it was after that they realized just how wild she really was. She didn't speak any language, and she only made guttural animal-like noises. She also refused cooked foods and preferred to gnaw on raw meat. She didn't take well to the changes in her diet that doctors tried to force on her, and eventually all her teeth fell out. The girl was hospitalized in Chalon, where she was baptized as Marie-Angelique Mamé Leblanc. In 1755, Marie-Catherine Homicel Hecate published a biography which she wrote in collaboration with LeBlanc titled An Account of a Savage Girl, in which she revealed the girl's secret origins. According to this account, LeBlanc was a Sioux Indian from Wisconsin who was stolen from her family when she was around seven or eight and sold as a slave to a French family. This family painted the girl all black to match the skin of the other slaves. Then they put her on a ship bound from France but the boat became shipwrecked. The girl survived and was washed ashore with another girl. From there, they both survived in the wilderness and grew more feral over time. They survived by eating squirrels, rabbits, and other small game. At some point, the pair became separated and eventually LeBlanc was captured. Unlike a lot of stories of feral children, LeBlanc eventually began to regain her health in the hospital and even took well to learning to speak the French language. At the same time, she became quite a public spectacle, with a number of intellectuals and high society members coming to gawk at this former savage. LeBlanc caught the attention of a duke who granted her a generous allowance and allowed her to explore Europe. During this period, she even toyed with the idea of becoming a nun. When the duke died in 1752, this left LeBlanc without any means of financial support. But she managed to reach out to several of the duke's wealthy connections. This included Queen Marie, the wife of Louis XV. It was through these wealthy benefactors that LeBlanc managed to grow her own fortunes. 
She was quite wealthy by the time she died in 1775 at age 63. Although in some ways you can think of the story of Marie LeBlanc as being the ultimate rags to riches story. If you look at it through another perspective, you realize just how offensive it is. LeBlanc was stolen from her family and everything she knew. And forced to adapt to what high society determined was acceptable behavior. The name LeBlanc translates to white, which should give you some idea of the underlying racism behind the French nobility's attempts to, quote, civilize her. On top of that, the story has a strong undertone of sexism to it as well. Consider that one of the first times she was ever spotted, LeBlanc showcased her strength by beating a dog to death. During the era when LeBlanc lived, women were expected to be subservient housewives, and were certainly not expected to be strong and capable creatures who could not only live independently from men, but also be a potential threat to the patriarchy. Throughout much of LeBlanc's early re-education, she was held in restraints and abused until she learned to behave herself. When Homicel Hecate met LeBlanc in 1765, she noted how the woman had little of the savage about her she expected to see. By the time this once screaming wild girl of the forest died, she had fully assimilated into French society, preferring to wear silk and velvet. Although, as her biographer noted, throughout her life she always maintained a certain wildness in her look. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank. Thank you to Natasha for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, signed cards from yours truly, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. These are some of the stories that just aren't quite long enough to fill full-length episodes, but I think are still equally as fascinating, and I bet you will too. We also have a merch store where you can find all sorts of nifty Conspirators-themed items just in time for the holidays. If you're interested, I'll put a link to both my store and my Patreon in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the Conspirators is to give us a 5-star rating and write us a great review wherever you get your podcasts. Currently, we're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else you can get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can list our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere. I encourage you to check us out on social media. We're currently on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. Give us a follow or even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.